After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich with her excessive luxuries. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her love, her lux shared her luxury, saw the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will explain, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. 
Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So begins, perhaps prophetically, um, Dickens' great novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And this is the title for the next two Sundays, our final two in the book of Revelation. And we're going to speak today about one great city, characterized here as Babylon. And next week we're going to speak about the heavenly city, Zion, the home of God himself and our home forever. I wonder who's drawn the short straw. How did that happen? The best of times, the worst of times. In, in very many ways, a perfect description of the nature of the book of Revelation. So we come towards the end of the book. We enter a prophecy of the violent and terrifying end that must come to much that this world under the control of the evil one, as John tells us in, in 1 John 5, this world under the control of the evil one holds dear the worst of times, and then the unutterably magnificent city of God that will replace it, the best of times. So uh, you might like to have, for the next few minutes, uh, the passage from this morning open in your Bibles. Either you, you'll be online, which is great, on phones or whatever. If you've got the Pew Bible, the um, turquoise-backed uh, NIVs in front of you, uh, we're in chapter 18, and that is found on page 1246. <clears throat> Our passage this morning begins with the phrase, after this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. So, after what? We have to ask, after what? And looking back in chapter 17, we see it's uh, the woman on the scarlet beast that, that Simon mentioned a moment ago in the, in the video. The woman is Babylon the Great, we're told. <clears throat> she is, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. We're told the woman is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth in 17 and verse 5. The great city that rules over the kings of the earth, 17 last verse. Incredibly strong language, incredibly strong language, even by revelation standards. So we know where we're headed this morning. 
as we begin chapter 18. This is about the judgment that will be meted out to this great city, the great social and economic center that is characterized by Babylon here. So verses 1 and 2 begins like this, begins our passage like this. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. This is only an angel, remember. This is not the Lord. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Let's say right away, there's nothing wrong at all with the design and concept of a great city. And it's really important to put that in the room. The intention of cities is good. The idea is that people should gather together for security and for mutual support and for economic prosperity and for mutual encouragement and flourishing. And this happens, and we see it a lot today. But in the Babylon of the book of Revelation, it has gone wrong. It has gone wrong. Babylon that should be wonderful has become a horror. And the moment we're about to witness is when Babylon gets its just desserts, the terrifying judgment that this society has brought upon itself. John's language, John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation, who we think was John the Apostle, John's language in this verse and in all of chapter 18 is strongly reminiscent of the Old Testament judgment text, those of you who are familiar, including, importantly, chapter 27 of Ezekiel, which prophesied the fall of Tyre. Now, I mention this for one important reason. If you're not familiar with Ezekiel, I quite understand if you're not familiar with Ezekiel, but please read. If you read no other Ezekiel, read chapters 27 and 28. This is why these chapters are widely understood among scholars. I didn't know this for a very long time. to be a direct prophecy around Satan. So if I read from them for one moment, listen to this. This is said about the king of Tyre. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a god. I sit on the throne of a god in the heart of the seas. But you're a mere mortal and not a god, though you think you are as wise as a god. You are the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made you a spectacle before kings. And there is the massive clue. The pride that takes the blessings and the gifts of God and says, aren't I amazing? It's me. It's me who should be worshipped. Actually, I should be God. Who does God think he is anyway? That is the very heart of evil. That is the very heart of sin. That is, the sin is, the, the origin of sin is the wanting to replace God. And that is what Satan did, and that is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in Eden. So that is the, 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 the original heart of sin, the heart of Satan. And back in Revelation, that is the beast. Satan is the beast on whom the woman Babylon is sitting in chapter 17. And now we read in verse 2 of 18, she has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. So Babylon, like so many cities today, symbolizes, and this is really important, I think, symbolizes the world that lives as if God is not there. 
the, the terrifying in its arrogance. The world that lives as if God is not there. Perhaps a gentler example, but I remember it vividly, the, the, the true story that when the Titanic was launched from Southampton, it, it is said that a woman, a, a, a well-to-do, a wealthy lady, walked up the brow <clears throat> and was greeted by one of the officers at the top of the brow. And she said, is it true that this ship is, is unsinkable? And the officer replied, Madam, God himself could not sink this ship. Extraordinary. At least he acknowledged God. We go even, it's even worse when our society doesn't even acknowledge that there is a God who might even be thought of as being able to bring justice and, 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 and response. Babylon symbolizes the world that lives as if God is not there. This great idea of city is completely lost when its leaders and people start to ignore God. So how does this happen? How do we get to that horrible point? I think the world does it through a mix of deliberate and willful dismissal. So deliberate and willful dismissal. That's, I shun God. I just walk away. I choose to live without him. God, I have no place for you in my life. And sheer ignorance. For some, it is a sheer ignorance that we, we live under the spirit of this willful turning away. The city represents that, and I just get caught up in it. The psalmist says in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool says in his or her heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. There is an intensity of people. Uh, there is an intensity that comes from when people live in close quarters in, in urban settings. Think Monday London. Think New York, Paris, Shanghai, Mumbai, Tokyo. Those are... You have traveled to any of those. We see God's people in most modern-day cities. In some, they're in ascendancy. In some, they're under persecution and all points in between. And we see the work of the enemy also in cities, often in, in multiple forms. At the time of writing, the great Babylon was most represented by Rome, ancient Rome, a city that sat in luxury at the heart of a godless empire, uh, and yet one from which goodness would also spring eventually. But what are the symptoms of this godlessness? that we see in these urban quarters. Verse 3 says this, All the nations have drunk the manning wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Godlessness takes root when we become so preoccupied with ourselves that we have no time left for God. The angel shows us two things, adulteries, and excessive luxury. So adulteries, both in the sexual sense and in the sense of faithlessness and idolatry. Uh, those of you familiar with Hosea, who was asked to, by God to marry a woman who will be faithless sexually, but also um, in the sense of uh, faithlessness and looking to others. And then excessive luxury. What is excessive luxury? Well, we may have different views. One person's joy seems to another to be excessive luxury. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals with this. <clears throat> it's, um, it seems to be the spirit by which it's done that counts. So G.K. Chesterton, the great author of Victorian times and great believer, he used to say when he sat in front of the theatre, at a beautiful theatre, a beautiful play, the curtain would go up, he'd say, thank you, Father. He'd go to the cricket and watch the first ball bowled and he'd say, thank you, Father. This is all for me to enjoy, and I'm grateful. That's one spirit. And that's a good spirit. Luxury might be, for you, a beautiful dinner. 
Excessive luxury might involve, I don't know, playing skittles with priceless wine. Or we were, I was in Croatia and split recently with my family. We went around the palace of the Emperor uh, Diocletian and they used to have a room called a vomitorium. And a vomitorium was a place where people induced vomiting in themselves so that they could eat more. How warped is that? How warped is that? I could point to that, but you could point to a hundred things that happen now. It's not just a product of that age. That is godlessness. That is the excessive luxury. While others starved, of course. Revelation 18 clearly tells us that the future for the society that lives in willful ignorance of God is destruction. There is no question, there is, which is why we have the heavenly voice and why he says it twice, fallen, fallen. There is destruction. That's it. The boasting that is so much a symptom of this godlessness, just check out verse 7. Um, in her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. That boasting, that, that will be shown for what it is in reality. Emptiness, nothingness, and very, very stupid. The destruction will be violent and fast. Verse 21, the mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone, threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Verse 9, woe, woe to you great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, John might say in one brief hour, your doom has come. What looked so enormous and so settled and so impregnable to human eyes actually is destroyed in one brief hour by our Father in heaven. Splash. Babylon sinks like a stone, never to be seen again. It will shock everyone. In verses 9 to 19, in that, in that passage, John categorizes kings, merchants, and sea captains. The kings are the leaders you should have known better, and they have committed adultery with her. In other words, they've taken her standards and not their own. And now we also hear that they share her luxury with her. So the second action, the luxury, illuminates the first, the adultery, suggesting that adultery is actually a metaphor for the worship of the false god of material wealth and pleasure. And at the same time, we also acknowledge that, it is, that sexual sin and abandon is so often at the heart of a fallen society. And by the way, the sexual sin is almost always governed by the familiar spirit of my body is mine, I can do as I please. I can do as I please. Again, in sharp contrast to Paul's advice to us in 1 Corinthians, 16, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, to honor God with our bodies, since your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's also worth noticing the phrase merchants of the earth in verse 3. It comes again in verse 11, and it puts the merchants on the same level as the kings. Merchants are rarely mentioned in Scripture, in fact, only here uh, four times, and then in Matthew 13 as part of Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price. But John points to a close relationship between the two groups. So in the British Empire, there was the East India Company. Right? In the, in, 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 with the United States, there was a whole industrial military complex in the, in the modern era, and now the sprawling digital empires of the information age. So trade and conquest go hand in hand, and so they did in the Roman Empire. And that is what the, the author is speaking of here. So how should we think about this? How, how, how do we... How do we Make, how do we take something from this that's going to help us? It's going to help us live as the people of God today. Because <clears throat> this is speaking about today. Let's, uh, let's, let's make no bones about that. We cannot avoid, the first thing is this, we cannot avoid 
interacting with Babylon. So here we are, we're in our Babylonian 2022 version with its adulteries and its excessive luxuries. We cannot avoid interacting with Babylon, and we shouldn't. In fact, we're called on to make a difference. In Jeremiah 29, 4-6, God says, To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage. Increase in number, do not decrease in Babylon. We must seek to have influence in the Babylon in which we live. Daniel became prime minister of Babylon under three of the kings. We cannot simply withdraw from the world and abandon it. And yet, we are to be savvy. We are to be savvy. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. We may live well and have influence in Babylon, but we are to weep as we remember that our real home is not here. And I don't want to be one of the merchants standing horrified when the fall comes. I was just considering that in my own journey in business. And I was thinking, it's about where we put our trust and confidence. The psalmist says, Psalm 146, don't put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. The great prostitute has faithlessness at her heart. We must not have. We are to be faithful and guard our hearts, the wellspring of our lives. We know how we're doing when we check in with our hearts. I don't know if you have a process for this. I, I have some. I, I ask these questions of myself. It's worth taking some time out, just checking in with our hearts. What do I long for? What do I really long for? What makes me glad? What wounds me? What hurts me? Where do I compromise my faith? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Do I profit from Babylonian trade? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with, with that. In essence, the gold and silver and precious stones and pearls of verse 12 are then redeemed in the city of Zion. As we'll hear next week, Revelation 21, 19 to 21. They're shown to be the foundations of the city and they're used to create the throne of God himself. There's nothing wrong with the trade in essence. But is the niche I found for myself God-given or is it just comfortable? The people who marry the world will be left as cheated husbands and wives and eventually as widows and widowers. We are not to marry the world. One day, then it will be time to leave. As the voice says in verse 4, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Our societies, with all their evils, will one day fall. One of the most important, most nuanced things we're called to do as a people of God is to discern when to live in harmony with the world, contributing and bringing flourishing, and when to say to Babylon, enough is enough, and we leave so that we're not drawn in. But until the moment comes to leave, we are to live in Babylon as the people of God. Jesus, speaking to his friends the night of Gethsemane, said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, John 15. Farewell discourse of Jesus. And in him, as always, lies the answer. In Jesus alone lies the answer to this question. However badly we get it wrong, there is always a way home. However badly we get it wrong, living in Babylon, there is always a way home. The one who mastered living without giving in bequeaths to us his righteousness and with it 
citizen of, citizenship of Zion and the eternal right to glory. The hymn writer beautifully has it, so be it, Lord, your throne shall never like earth's proud empires pass away. Your kingdom stands and grows forever until there dawns your glorious day. I wonder whether Dickens' two cities really are London and Paris, as it appears. Or are they the city of the world and the city of God? I don't know. Sidney Carson, the great hero of the book, sacrifices himself right at the end for another. Sorry for the spoiler, but it is a classic. And as he prepares for the guillotine to fall, this is what he says. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. And in their struggles to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats, through long years to come, I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth wearing out. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. And it's a far, far better rest I go to than I've ever known. Now, Dickens may have profoundly intended this to be an image of the now and the future, the Babylon and the city of Zion. How will we know? Hopefully we get to ask him over a glass of very fine wine in the city of God. But what I do know is that the real man who gave his life for me said to the thief next to him, surely this day you will be with me in paradise. And so to the thief, to you and to me, whatever our troubles here, you and I, we are ultimately citizens of heaven and children of its king. And in the immortal words of Gershwin, they can't take that away from me. Amen.